<laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, we're going to go ahead and, and get started in our study. I'm going to pray quickly to kind of draw us all back together. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, I just ask that all the words that come out of my mouth are from you. Lord, I just want us to grasp the concept of what you're saying in these verses, dear God, to see the, the glory that you're projecting. So, Lord, I just ask you to be with us. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our understandings. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember way back when, two weeks ago, we were talking about the first part of the tabernacle and the instructions that uh, God gave Moses, and then we got as far as the altar, and that's all the further we got. And um, we talked about how God's desire was to be near his people. That's what all this was about. He wasn't being arbitrary. He didn't make these rules up just because he could. You know, you can't do this because I said you can't. It was because he's a holy God, and there's no way he can tolerate sin. So there had to be a way to get around it. There had to be a sacrifice. Now we're going to come to the bronze laver. And right after the altar of sacrifice, there was a huge wash basin. I think they had a picture of it. Not the actual one, of course. But, um, <laughs> but um, And so there, Exodus 30, 17 to 21 said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze wash basin with a bronze stand. Place it between the tabernacle and the altar. Fill it with water. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and their feet there. They must wash with water whenever they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord. And when they approach the altar to burn up their special gifts to the Lord, or they will die. They must always wash their hands and their feet, or they will die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and his descendants to be observed from generation to generation. So that made it pretty clear they were supposed to wash their hands and their feet. <laughs> so it says the priest did no ministry of any kind in the tabernacle without washing in the laver first. They washed their hands and their feet. Did you wonder what the significance was of washing your hands and your feet? Not your arms and your head and just your hands and your feet. Well, the hands represent what they did, their service, their work. Everything they put their hands to was important. And so their hands needed to be cleansed always and daily. The initial cleansing by Moses, if you read the chapters, Moses cleansed the priest before the dedication of the tabernacle. That was a one-time thing. He cleansed all of them. From this point on, in the tabernacle, they had to wash their hands and their feet. The feet represent where they went in their lives and the ways that they walked. Their walk had to be holy, so their feet were washed always, every day. So what's our application? Well, just as the altar points to the death of Jesus, the labor points to the life of Jesus. Blood represents a life taken, but water represents a life given. You can live a lot longer without food than you can water. Water is necessary. Water is life-giving. The water represents the ministry of the word. In the book, How to Worship a King, it says that it is, it is not only a prerequisite for ministry, it is a necessary aspect of every believer's worship life to be in the word. The word precedes worship. We as people live in a fallen world. 
we get out, we walk in the dirt, flex on our feet, gets on our hands. We touch things that soil us. It represents that, I mean, it's obvious that parts of the world cling to us every day because we walk out in the world. We're exposed to the wickedness of the world, even though we're saved through Jesus' blood. We still sin sometimes. Maybe not as overtly as we did before, but we still do. Attitudes, you know, reactions. Still sin. The labor and the water represent the word of God. We need daily washing by his word. We need to read it. We need to meditate on it. We need to take it in daily. The word cleanses our soul. Titus 3, 4 and 5 says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit renews us. It washes us. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27 say, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The word washes us. He was going to wash him by the word. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So what do we do with this? Romans 12.2 tells us pretty much what to do with this knowledge. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We learn the will of God through reading the word. When I was younger, when I was an early teen or that, you know, people would always talk about the will of God. You have to know what the will of God is for your life. And I'd always think, well, when's he going to tell me, you know? <laughs> How am I going to know? And I remember my grandmother telling me that the more that you read the Bible and think about it, the more you're going to understand the will of God because he will direct you. And that's true. It's going to be hard to know the will of God if you never spend any time in his word. So we're going to go on through the tabernacle now. So the enclosed area in the courtyard is where we've been so far. In the outer courts, the people were learning to be servants. They were learning to obey. They were learning to know how to sacrifice, to have an attitude of thankfulness and submit and obedience to God. Inside the tent, which is called the tabernacle itself, we come to the table of showbread. It was constructed out of acacia wood and covered in gold. You might make a note there's no bronze in the tabernacle. It's all gold. It's a sign of deity. Gold, because it belonged to a king. The table of showbread is about worshiping and intimacy. Revelations 3.20 said, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. It was a small table. It was only about three feet long and a foot and a half wide, maybe two feet off the ground. But on that table were golden plates, and on those plates were 12 loaves of unleavened bread for the 12 tribes of Israel. And a couple of the commentaries that I looked at said that Jewish tradition says that those bread, the loaves of bread were pierced all the way through to allow the steam out of them so they didn't get mushy. 
that's not in scripture, but in the commentaries, they said that was Jewish tradition, said that. But that surely represents Jesus as the bread of life. John 6, 58 says, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate manna, but will live forever. And Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Jesus is the bread of life. He wants to, to share that with us. He wants that intimate feeling of sitting down and communing with us, having a meal with us. Something intimate is expressed there. Then we come to the golden lampstand, which sat opposite the table of showbread. And it was to be kept burning at all times. It was made out of solid gold, had six branches that came off the main shaft. Each had a bowl. There were seven bowls in all. It was intricately decorated. Each bowl had three buds, three flowers, three fruits. It was the priest's job to trim the wicks, make sure the oil was in the bowls, and make sure it was burning. They did it in the morning. They did it at night. It was supposed to burn all the time. The showbread and the lampstand both represent this intimacy. They represent communion with God. The oil in the lamps represents the Holy Spirit. John 9, 5 says, Jesus said, as long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he left the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in us that ushers us into close communion with God so that we can go out and represent the bread of life to the world and be the light in a very dark world. If you take a light into an extremely dark place, it lights up the whole place. I'm sure everybody's done this experiment if you're somewhere where it's really, really dark, where there's no light coming in. I can remember being in Carlsbad Cavern one time, and they turn out the lights to show you how dark it is. And you could hit yourself in the face, in the nose, before you, and you never saw your hand. But if you light one match, it lights up the place. That's what we're supposed to do to a dark world. That's what Jesus did to his world. He lit it up. He came and everything was drawn to him. The last article of worship in this area of the holy place is the altar of incense. This altar is a square box made out of acacia wood covered entirely with gold. And like the altar of sacrifice, it has horns on each of the corner, but these horns are made out of gold. Once a year, the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was applied to these horns. The priests were to burn incense, a formula designed by God. Remember, we talked about that last week. Morning and night, incense was sprinkled on the hot coals. The hot coals were brought from the altar of sacrifice. I found this interesting. The priests were to bring the coals from the altar of sacrifice after a sacrifice to put on the altar of incense and then sprinkle the incense on and the, the flame that they used to light the candles came off of the altar of incense. So all of that was done from the altar of sacrifice. And I thought, gee, that everything starts with sacrifice. All forms of worship, all forms of intimacy with God start with sacrifice. In um, Exodus 36, it talks about the altar of incense. It says, you shall put it before the veil that is before the, the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that's over the testimony. That's where I will meet you. Then the lamps were attended to and the incense was attended to. 
morning and night, all the time, every day. The altar represented a burning, passionate prayers of the people of God. Psalms 141.2 says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my holy hands in the evening sacrifice. The altar speaks to us of worship. Jesus is our high priest. He's also our mediator. It was only on the basis of his sacrifice on the cross that worship was made possible for us. That's, that's what makes it all possible. The coals which lit the incense, al- the incense altar, like I said, came from the altar. The, I'm sorry. The coals that lit the incense altar were carried from the altar of sacrifice. Worship is a product of salvation. Although the common priest would burn these holy spices on the altar over 700 times a year, they knew that no priest other than the high priest could go beyond this point and only on the Day of Atonement. The Holy of Holies was a very holy place, and you could only come into it the way God said you could come into it. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, always making intercession for us. Here are some scriptures. I found these, these kind of exciting because when you really think about Jesus praying for us, I think that's pretty exciting. It's kind of like a progressive dinner. I don't know why I thought of that, but I did. You know, <laughs> we, <laughs> we pray. We're supposed to go to God with our petitions. We take them to God. It says we can boldly come before his throne. We ask for our things. Jesus makes intercession for us. He prays for me. I can pray to God for what I want and need and all that, but Jesus then prays for me. He steps in between. And I thought that was, um, that was pretty exciting. He intercedes. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. John 17.15 says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying that God keeps you from evil. Our prayers and worship become that incense, the sweet aroma before God. Revelations 5.8 says, Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Revelations 8, 3 and 4 says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense, that he would offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So we have the tabernacle with the altar of incense that that God set in motion so that he could fulfill it in Jesus. And it's still, that same principle is still around in Revelations. Because God's plan is for eternity. It's not just for right now. The altar sat in front of the veil. And when you think of a veil, you think of like a wedding veil that you can kind of see the bride through. This veil was not like that. It was a good three feet thick, they figure. You weren't seeing through it. It was a formidable stop. You did not go beyond there. You did not go beyond the altar of incense unless you were supposed to. After the veil comes the most important area of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. We discussed a little bit about it last time. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box of acacia wood covered with gold. 
It was to hold the tablet of stone written by God given to Moses. It represented the presence of God. It demanded reverence, adoration, and worship. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. He carried a censer filled with the coals and the incense before him. It went in first. The priest carried that through the veil. We all know that God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all at one time. And God tells us that. In Hebrews 13.5, it says he tells us that he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. His presence is with us always. He's everywhere. But there's another type of the presence of God, and it's his manifest presence. His manifest presence can be seen. It can be felt. It's what the Israelites saw in the pillar of fire and the cloud. When, when they dedicated the tabernacle, it said that there was such a heaviness that they had to leave. They couldn't, they couldn't exist in it at the same time. It was the presence of God. It's still the, Acts 2 tells us that when the Holy Spirit came in the upper room, God's power was seen as tongues of fire. That's the manifest presence of God, and it still happens today. We can feel God. There are times when you can feel him so close to you, when you have the sensation of, of God holding you. If you went around the room, everyone could tell stories of times in their life where they knew for sure that God was right there, that God was holding them, that God did something. And then on top of the ark was the mercy seat. It was the most elaborate article in, in the whole tabernacle. It was made of gold, solid gold. There was a cherub on each end of the rectangle. Their wings stretched from the top, and they touched in the middle. It had a gold ring around the edge, and it always sat on the ark. The ark was carried by poles through rings on the side. No one could touch it. God told him, you cannot touch this. You will die. And he meant it. Because when it happened, the people died. Only the priest could enter the area. It was a holy place. The priests wore their linen garment. They took off the fancy robes with the, with the jewels and the stones and the bells and the whatever. They took those off. They only went in with their linen garment on. It was an act of humility. They were before a holy God. They, they weren't showing off, you know. They were just coming humbly before God. You might say that the outstretched wings of the cherubim were to provide a throne for God, where he would meet the high priest, where he would give instructions for his people, where he spoke to Moses from. When God had spoken to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, he also told him that he would come down and speak to him in the midst of the people. It was from this area of the mercy seat that God spoke. Number seven 89 said, now when Moses went into the tabernacle to meet or speak with him, he heard a voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony that was between the two cherubim, and there he spoke to him. The mercy seat protected men from the judgment of God. Once a year on the day of atonement, priests would go in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Because of that blood that was sprinkled, the people's sin and guilt were covered until the next day of atonement. And the curse of the law didn't have an effect on them then until the next day of atonement. The purpose of the mercy seat was fulfilled in Jesus. He is our mercy seat. 
He stands between a holy God and a sinful man. It's Jesus that provides that. He is our mercy seat. It is his blood that washes away our sin. It doesn't just cover it anymore. It cleanses it. Jesus is our high priest, but he's also our sacrifice. I just thought that concept was just so meaningful to me, that he's our high priest, he's our mediator, he prays for me, but he also sacrificed for me. He did all that. He earned his place. I mean, he is our sacrifice. It's his blood. God's plan was perfected through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in wrapping this up and going quickly through the tabernacle, there's something, a concept that kind of came to me, and I want you to try to catch it with me. Um, And this was a very last-minute addition, so I hate to go into my great-nephew all the time, but he does clever things that seem to work out in my Bible studies. So (laughs) I was talking to Jacob, and he showed me he loves Legos. He's a builder. He showed me this, this thing. It was about this long. It was about, oh, an inch high, maybe four or five inches long and narrow. And on one end of it, it had two or three stacks up of Legos. And he goes, look what I built. And I'm looking at it. Well, you don't ask a kid, gee, what is that? Because, you know, I said, what does it do, Jacob? And he goes, it's a boat that has airplanes on it. And I said, oh, it's an aircraft carrier. And he goes, it's a boat. And I said, yes, it's a boat and airplanes come on it. And he goes, yes, it's a boat that has airplanes on it. And I said, how did you know how to build that? And he said, and he gets the box out, and there were lots of pictures. And he says, there's a picture of it. You look at the picture, and then you know how to build it. And when I was praying over this and studying it, I thought, that's what God did. He said, look, I'm going to give you a picture. I'm going to build the tabernacle, and I'm giving you a picture. I'm giving you a picture of what it takes to come to me. I'm giving you a picture of what my son is going to do. I'm giving you a picture of how to worship. Look at it. Do it. I'm setting it all before you. Just walk through it. And if you've noticed anything by now, the tabernacle is Jesus. Jesus represents everything in that tabernacle, starting at the gate, because Jesus is the way. The outer altar, it's his blood that was shed for our sacrifice. The labor, because he is the word, and he washes away our sins. The table of showbread, because he is the bread of life. The lampstand, because he is the light of the world. John 8, 12 says, Then Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light of the Lord. So live as people of the light. We live in a dark world. We're the light. That means we live different. We, we were, we're saved. We're supposed to be salt and light in the world. If we're not doing that, God didn't do the whole tabernacle scene so we could just sit and say, I'm just going to spend all my time, you know, sitting here and just being still before God. You need time like that, but you also need time out showing the light. Because that's what Jesus did. He walked into a dark world and he changed it. And that's what he wants us to do. That's our commission. We're supposed to go into the world. We're not supposed to cloister together in monasteries. The altar of incense represents the prayers of the saints rising up to the throne of God. It represents Jesus being our intercessor before God. 
I pray for them. It says in John 17, 9, 9 and 10, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours and all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You know that veil that separated the two halves of the tabernacle? You don't have to worry about it anymore because it's gone. It was rent in two at the death of Jesus. He said, you don't have to worry about this anymore. Everybody gets to go in. Everybody who is a believer can come to God. We can walk right in. He took it away. It was rent in two. It allows every believer access. And I thought, that is so awesome. Where once God was unapproachable, except by the high priest once a year, through ceremony and washing and the sprinkling of blood, now we have Jesus' blood that's already been shed, and we can just come. We can just come. You and I can commune directly with God Almighty. And, you know, if, if that doesn't really kind of get you, I don't know. Because to think about that, that you can sit before God Almighty and you can say, Lord, here is what. Here's what I want to say to you, directly to you. The other people never got to leave the courtyard. They never even got to go into where the showbread was. But now we get to walk right through the whole thing, and it's all because of Jesus. Next, we have the Ark of the Covenant representing God's glory. Through Jesus, we have direct access to God's glory, to his might, to his presence. He fulfilled all that was represented in the tabernacle. The mercy seat was where God met man. Jesus is our connection to God. When Jesus ascended, he left the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He left him for us. The Holy Spirit lives in me. He lives in you. If you've accepted Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And we've become the tabernacle. We've become that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God brought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. As we have said, God had a plan. He had a plan from creation. God created man knowing he was going to fail, knowing he was going to sin, knowing he needed a plan. And he set it in motion. And he brought it down through all the patriarchs, through Abraham, through Joseph, all that. He put it in motion. The tabernacle totally represents Jesus. And now Jesus came and he died. And we live in the new covenant area. We live in the new tabernacle. He lives in us. That's us. We're all those things now. We're supposed to be that for other people. He had a plan. And I, I just think that's just so awesome. You know, the tabernacle was an example of everything that pointed to Jesus. It was like the Lego picture I told you about. God said, here's my picture. Here it is. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing with my son. Here's the sacrifice. Here's the way you come to me. Here's what will wash your sins away. Here's the bread of life. I want to commune with you. I want to know you. I want you to worship me. I want you to know me. It was all fulfilled in Jesus. You know, the tabernacle was temporary, but our salvation is not temporary. If you think about it as that picture about God's plan, 
and how we could have fellowship with him. That's what God wanted. That's what all this was about, was so that he could be with his people. And that's what Jesus is about, so that we can be with God, so that God can be in us. And I just, I don't know, when I was reading this through the last time, and it certainly wasn't my words, I just thought, God, you are so awesome. You are so mighty. You are so holy. Why? Why? Why did you do this for me? You know, what, what did, you know, what could I possibly bring to you that was worth this? You know, it's only because he loved us. He loves me. He loves you. He wants to commune with you. He wants you to know him. He already knows you. He wants you to know him. And that's done by spending time and worshiping. And the tabernacle was about worshiping. So when you go and, and you start your prayer, what I'd really like you to do first is spend a couple minutes just worshiping God, just seeking his presence. You can do it individually, alone. You can do it collectively. But just pray. Just praise God. Just thank him for what he did for this big, massive, intricate plan, all to know us, all to know people.